Okay, well, um, I was recording the, uh, thought I was recording the podcast, but turns out that it wasn't, uh, so the podcast lost the first half of that. So, um, so we'll uh, go back a little bit and refresh uh, your knowledge from intro psych on um, cognitive psychology, uh, because cognitive psychology is going to be important in terms of influencing the development of the social cognitive uh, perspective in social psych. So um, remember uh, I was alluding earlier to the idea of the environment the role of the environment in influencing our behavior. Um, when we engage in a behavior, the environment provides us with consequences as a function of that behavior, right? So let's say, um, you know, I go out, <clears throat> I, this happened just yesterday. Uh, I went out to the campus center here and I um, was going to get a soda out of the soda machine. A pop? You call it pop here or soda? Soda? Pop? I was going to get a soda pop out of the machine. <laughs> you know what's really interesting about soda pop, or soda, or pop, um, is uh, that it has this very interesting regional um, association. And in fact, there's a fellow who collected some data on this on the internet by just basically asking people to go there and put in their zip code or postal code in Canada and um, say what they called soda or, or pop in their home region, you know, wherever they grew up. And, um, and so he maps it out on this map, and it has this very distinct kind of interesting um, geographic uh, relationship. Anyway, so, uh, so I went over to the machine, and I put my dollar in, and uh, two quarters, because it's fifty for a bottle, and uh, something happened, like the, um, you know, it didn't give me a soda. Like normally, I put a dollar and fifty cents in, and I push the button, and I get a consequence from that behavior. And the consequence from the normal consequence from that behavior is that a soda will come out, and that'll be a reinforcement for putting the dollar fifty cents in it, right? What if I put the dollar and fifty cents in the machine? and it doesn't give me a soda. Right. So the environment, that machine being part of my environment, is affecting my behavior. And that's very, you know, that's very classically behaviorist. And the behaviorist perspective, remember, was really dominant for the first half of the 20th century. Really from about um, 1900 up until about 1950, 1960, this was the dominant perspective in explaining behavior. Um, and so, so the, the, the exact phrase that you should have memorized about behaviorism is that our behavior is a product of the contingencies of reinforcement that are present in our environment. The past record of our reinforcements. I have a past record, a history, of 
being reinforced by a soda coming out when I put a dollar fifty in a soda machine. And because of that contingency of that past contingency of reinforcement, um, I am more likely to walk up to a soda machine and put a dollar fifty in it to get a soda than I am to walk up to a plant and put a dollar fifty in it because it never gives me a soda when I put a dollar fifty in the plant, right? Well, uh, sometimes in my imagination, but that's usually a function of some other kind of substance in the environment. Um, so, uh, so the behavior is product and contingency reinforcement. So this is the idea that um, there's a stimulus, right? I see a soda machine. Um, there's a response. My behavior is the response to that stimulus. My behavior is that I put a dollar fifty in the soda machine. And the consequence of that behavior is I get a soda. Um, so what the behaviorist said is since these are the only things that I can directly observe and cognition is what we call a black box, what's going on in here I don't have access to. Right? I don't have access to your subjective thoughts, so all that I can study is what stimuli are in your environment, what your behavior is, and how the consequences affect your future behavior. Everything else in here, it's not the subject of scientific psychological study. Um, and what will happen is a lot of psychologists are not happy about that. They want to know what's going on in here. And so um, what will emerge in cognitive psychology is the idea that um, in order to understand behavior, and especially complex human behavior, um, we need to know what's going on inside the black box. What's happening in between the stimulus and the response. So this area in here is the study is what cognitive psychologists are interested in. And um, what's going to wind up happening is um, B.F. Skinner is going to say uh, language acquisition occurs because of operant conditioning. When a baby says mama, we go, oh, the baby said its first word, oh, yay. Right? And so the baby is more likely, because of that reinforcement, to say mama again in the future. Um, and the challenge to that perspective is going to be Noam Chomsky. Do you remember anything about Noam Chomsky? Noam Chomsky came along. He was a linguist. And he said, no, that can't be true, because um, there are, off, there, are, there are a lot of situations where babies will never have been exposed to a particular um, sequence of words in grammar, but they will spontaneously emit that sequence of uh, words as a grammar. And it is understood, and it's um, generally used properly. So there hasn't been a contingency of reinforcement, a history of reinforcement in that case. Um, and so he's going to then propose the idea that there is a language acquisition device, which is innate and built into humans, that um, acquires particular grammars. Okay.
And then uh, that's really going to be the uh, beginning of the rise of cognitive psychology in the 1950s, 1960s. And it's still the dominant, you know, really one of the dominant perspectives now. Um, uh, Behaviorism uh, is still useful in understanding behavior. And actually, it's very useful in changing behavior. Applied behavioral analysis is what's used. But more and more, we're interested in what's going on in the black box and how that affects behavior. Um, Questions on that stuff? Something that's not clear? I didn't catch that. Um, Noam Chomsky was uh, instrumental in really pushing forward the development of cognitive psychology and the um, cognitive science approach to understanding uh, behavior, and uh, in in particular in reference to language. Um, you know, he put one of the nails in the coffin of. Uh, behaviorism is uh, the sole explanation for behavior. Okay, so cognitive psychology, functionalism, this is all coming together and what's going to wind up emerging is um, how we try to understand social thinking, how we try to understand how we think about our social environments. And um, here are four different um, sort of general perspectives on social thinking. Um, For one thing, uh, we think that human beings are consistency seekers. We generally try to reduce um, the inconsistencies that we have between, for example, our attitudes and our behaviors. Um, We tend to be motivated because these discrepancies cause us, uh, uh, they they throw us out of equilibrium. And we want to try to get back in that equilibrium, so we try to make our, our thoughts and our behaviors as consistent as possible. Okay, And that, um, one of the main principles here is the principle of cognitive dissonance, which is actually something uh, your book is going to deal with in the next chapter, so I'll put off talking about that until then. One of the other uh, approaches uh, to understanding social thinking is the idea of the naive scientist. So the principle behind the naive scientist is that we are all trying to be scientists in our social environments. Um, And what's particularly important about the idea of a scientist is a scientist is interested in studying behavior, but more importantly, a scientist is interested in looking for the causal relationships in behavior. In an experiment, we try to eliminate all the other possible factors except for the variable that we're trying to figure out is the cause of the behavior. And so, um, but naive scientists 
Um, and the word naive here, um, it isn't intended to be used pejoratively, like it, it typically is used pejoratively in uh, English. It's meant to uh, refer to someone who's inexperienced in the methods of science, um, not someone who is, um, you know, pie-eyed and, um, you know, pie, you know, head in the sky kind of thing. Um, the naive scientist is someone who looks for causal relationships, but maybe doesn't have the methodology to really establish those causal relationships. So oftentimes we'll look at associations. We'll see correlational relationships, and we will assign causal factors to it. But ultimately, what a naive scientist wants to do, wants to explain behavior. And the naive scientist will try to attribute behavior to a particular cause. And attribution is going to be one of the big things that social cognitive, the social cognitive perspective is going to want to look at. So the attributions that we provide for other people's behavior, why other people do, people do things. We attribute their behavior to a particular cause, right? Um, Remy, did you have a question on the naive scientist stuff? Examples or definitions? Um, well, like definitions. Like, like what? Systematic, systematic weighing of consensus, consistency, and distinctiveness information, and what rational thought requires. Um, you know, again, the definitions of consistency, consensus, and distinctiveness. Do they all go under naive science? Um, I don't know if you want to make it hierarchical. Probably not, yeah. But we can, um, uh, if you want to um, meet with me privately, we can go over uh, where that confusion might come from. So uh, a third um, way of looking at um, social thinking is from the perspective of the cognitive miser. And this was a uh, perspective put forward by uh, Shelley Taylor and uh, uh, and the cognitive miser approach says um, people are motivated to seek the easiest possible route to making a decision that they can. Basically, um, we're pretty lazy thinkers. And we try to minimize how much thinking we have to do in any given situation. Um, uh, it, it, it's sort of, um, the next perspective is sort of an outgrowth of the cognitive miser perspective. And it's um, sometimes known as what's called the motivated tactician, or what uh, I prefer to call the cognitive manager model. Um, the cognitive manager model is, you know, I'm biased toward it because my advisor in graduate school um, developed the cognitive manager model. And the cognitive manager model says, um, we are not lazy in how we um, seek out uh, routes to decision making, but rather we are very good at picking out what the most efficient 
and um, appropriate route is to decision making. But we can't always use um, we can't always use the best route in decision making in a situation where we're under a lot of pressure to make a decision. And so then we tend to fall back on um, easier or less cognitively taxing uh, uh, decision-making processes. These rely on the notion that we have a limited amount of cognitive capacity. We really can only do one thing well at a time. And if I put you under a lot of strain, a lot of cognitive load, um, and ask you to make a decision under that uh, situation of uh, heavy cognitive load, your decisions will tend to fall back more on heuristics and biases than on better decision-making uh, methods like algorithms. Okay. And we'll talk more about heuristics uh, and biases next class. Questions on these? Ideas? Oh, yes. Yeah, we all use all of these constantly during the day. Yeah. While we're encountering people in our social environment. Yeah, we do an amazing amount of cognition for what we think of as very simple kinds of things, like meeting a new person. Um, it's amazing the amount of stuff that we're doing. Okay, um, so these are four perspectives on trying to understand how we go about uh, thinking in our social environment. Um, but what really this comes down to in any given cognitive, social cognitive situation, we have to do certain kinds of things. First of all, we have to be able to pay attention to what's going on in our social environment. Um, so if we're distracted, for example, from paying attention to a particular aspect of the of, of, of our situation, that's, that aspect of the situation isn't going to affect uh, our behavior in general. There's an exception to that, and I'll talk about that in a second. We also rely on memory heavily in social cognition. We rely not only on memory of ourselves, because your identity and your sense of self is only is 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 the way it is because you remember who you were in the past, and it forms a continuous basis for your identity. You know, think about people who lose, who go through extreme forms of uh, retroactive amnesia. And they basically don't know who they are. They have no memory. They don't know what their name is. They don't know where they live. They don't know what their job was. Uh, and that's a shattering of the identity. So in a, in a lot of ways, your social thinking is a function of your memory of who you are 
and what groups you have belonged to, what your in-groups are, what your out-groups are, um, what your experiences have been in the past, um, but also your memory of other people is going to be um, important in terms of social cognition. So memory is going to be an extraordinarily important part. And memory is influenced by and causes uh, and uh, is well, I have to say is influenced by the schemas that we have, not only schemas about everybody else and our social environment, but schemas that we have of ourselves, right? And we talked about schemas earlier in the class. Remember what a schema is? How would you define a schema? It's a framework for for processing information, but more specifically, yeah, for categorizing aspects of the self and aspects of the social situation. So what things are dangerous? You have schemas for what things are dangerous out there, right? Um, so our schemas of ourself and our schemas of the situation, um, and this is all going to affect our attributions. The naive scientist, remember, is always looking for attributions for behavior, always looking for causes of behavior in other people. That person didn't smile at me because they don't like me, right? That person didn't smile at me because she's a beep, right? Um, so attribution is going to be important, and attribution is going to rely on all of this stuff. Um, and then ultimately, in social decision-making, we're always making inferences. We're inferring social, social thinking and how we perceive our social environment from incomplete information. We never have all the information we need to make decisions or to think about our social environment. And so we take what we have and we draw inferences from it. I infer that um, Colin is interested in what I'm talking about because his eyes are open and he's looking at the screen. That's obviously not necessarily a valuable inference, right? But that's the only information I have to go on at the moment. Okay. Absolutely. Does your sense of self affect this? Well, to me, it's the thing that started. Heck yeah. Well, they're all very interactive. Yeah. But if you were to start one play, you're trying to find a cause or correlation. Good. And on one day, they'll come up with one reason. On another day, they'll come up with another reason. Yeah, absolutely. So self, you know, the, the, how you perceive yourself, your self schema, um, has a huge effect. Um, Self-esteem, for example, is one of the variables we look at uh, when we try to find um, causes for behavior in situations. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so we'll look at a couple of these. Um, let's look at um, attention and perception here. So we talked a little bit about the idea of sensation. You know, my the physical, um, the, the what my sense receptors are doing, taking the energy that's being uh, bounced off of your bodies, and my sense receptors are busy turning that into electrical information that's going to go to my brain, and then my brain's going to take that electrical information from my optic sensors here and is going to turn that into um, perception, so what I see out there. Um, and when we talk about that, we talk about that as a bottom-up process. I take all this information and I construct reality from it. I construct my perception of this classroom from all that information I'm getting from my sense receptors, from my eyes, from my ears, from my nose, uh, from my feet, right? All that information is, is going into constructing my perception of being in this classroom at the moment. And then perception is thought of as a top-down process. So we take what we know about this classroom situation and we try to um, build meaning from all of that information. So all the meaning and information comes up from the senses then we impose some sort of uh, perceptual process on it to try to turn it into something that we understand, right? And so, um, and so in that way, perception really guides what we see, what we sense, what we experience. Now, the thing is that in order for uh, things in our environment to affect our social cognition, we need to notice them. And um, one of the problems is that we're not particularly good, um, we don't pay all that much attention to everything in our environment. We're really only good at paying attention to one thing at a time. So whatever happens to be occupying our cognition at the moment is what's going to guide what we pay attention to. On the other hand, we also have some pretty good evidence that I can give you things below the level of awareness. You can't consciously report that you've been exposed to them, but they will actually affect your behavior in the future. Like your childhood. Like your childhood. Well, no, no, not like your childhood. Um, Uh, I'm thinking experimentally and more in the present, yeah. Um, that's, you know, we're getting into Freudian unconscious conflict stuff, and I just shy away from that entirely. Um, you know, Freud is great. He's developed some wonderful theories, you know, and we all look back at our childhoods and try and understand the causes of our dysfunctional behavior in our current families, but ultimately... <laughs> I'm more interested in behavior in the moment, so, yeah. That's my own bias, though. So we call this um, being a low, the being something being below conscious awareness, subliminal. Sub being below liminal, the level of awareness. Okay. Um, so let me show you a couple of uh, 
video clips. I think we've got time for both of them. Um, the first one has to do with um, attention. Uh, you may have seen this in my other classes before. Um, those of you who have taken my classes with me. Um, and this is a phenomenon known as change blindness. And I'll just play this because it's self-explanatory.
detect these sorts of changes. But it's also possible that it's just coincidence that the people who noticed it just happened to be focusing on a feature that changed. They just happened to be paying attention to the color of the person's shirt. <laughs> and the people who failed to notice it just happened to be paying attention to the color of the So we don't always see things that are right there in front of us. Um, when our mind is busy doing other things, we really have to divide our attention. And we're really not good at dividing attention. So let that be a lesson if you're going to talk on your cell phones when you're driving. Really bad idea, even if it's hands-free, because your mind is busy. Your mind isn't good at focusing on driving and focusing on a conversation at the same time. Um, comments on this? Yeah. Well, one of the things you have to separate. So one of the things you have to separate um, is uh, the effect of the environment on cognition, thinking. And uh, something like, for example, uh, um, oh, I lost the words. State-based retrieval and memory. So um, we know, for example, that um, the environment that you're in when you go to retrieve information, the more similar it is to the environment when you formed the memory. Um, the retrieval tends to be better. Yeah. Now, here's, here's where, um, you know, a neuroscience, uh, a cognitive neuroscience uh, a study might be useful. Because if we, you know, have somebody study and we look at the parts of the brain that are active and busy, and we have somebody listening to music and we look at the parts of the brain that are active and busy, if we see that they're in two di you know, entirely different places, we might say there probably isn't that much interference. But if they overlap, then we might say there, there's probably a likelihood of interference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, change blindness uh, is useful from a, uh, hold on a second, is useful from an experimental perspective because what we can do 
is uh, we can put somebody into a social situation, you know, some sort of a laboratory task, and um, we can tell which pieces of information are more relevant to that person. So, um, so here's what we'll do, for example, um, and we've, I've, done, I've, I've been involved in these studies looking at um, prejudice and stereotyping. And one of the things we'll do is we will expose somebody to a particular stimulus, let's say a real fear-inducing stimulus that induces a lot of fear. And we'll put them in front of a computer monitor, and that computer monitor will have a series of faces, and some of those faces will change. And um, people who are more motivated to look for a particular dangerous person, for example, um, they'll notice that person first. And so the people who have, for example, you know, African-American faces, if we prime them for fear-relevant stimuli, um, if, you know, they might be more likely to pick out African-American faces changing more likely than Caucasian. Similarly, we can put people in a situation that induces um, romantic moods. And what we'll find is they'll tend to notice the faces that are more attractive. They'll notice those changes first before they'll notice the changes in the other faces. So they're paying more attention. They're spending more time attending to those relevant uh, stimuli in their environment. Um, and so this gives us, um, uh, again, more evidence for the idea that you know, we're always looking in our environment and figuring out what's important and what's not important and directing our attention to specific places. And that's going to affect our ability to attend to the whole uh, social environment. Yeah. I was just curious if you've done an experiment like this, like having one gentleman with blonde hair and one with brown hair. Because initially, you look at those guys, you can tell they're not the same person, but they have the same style of shirt, they have the same length, they mm -hmm. have the same color, mm -hmm. they're about the same height. Like, I think that's something Very different voices, though. Yep. I would think that someone would notice that because green to blue is really similar. So it's almost, I almost feel like they set the people up to not notice with that because those guys were very similar looking to me. Yeah. And oftentimes in social psychology experiments, we have to create situations that are more extreme um, than people might encounter uh, in their general environment. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not generalizable uh, findings. Right? <laughs> uh, any other uh, questions, comments? So uh, I don't have time for the um, uh, subliminal uh, attention uh, clip, but I'll get to that uh, next class. And we'll also uh, go over heuristics and biases and um, yeah, uh, the fundamental attribution error too. See you then.